0: Sermon text for this evening's message is John 13, verses 31 through 35. This is on page 900 in the Pew Bibles. This is John 13, verses 31 through 35. When Jesus had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him... By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray.
1: Father, I pray for Alan, Monica that your hand would rest upon them with joy and with a confirming sense of your sweet presence, your call. Make it clear to them, to us, concerning the role of pastor for church planting and Latino ministries. And Father, we pray for Chuck. We love Chuck. And we ask that he would be strong in the Lord and the strength of your might. And that as he takes a lead role among his wider family, that he would have resources Emotionally and spiritually to say things and be there in a way that would magnify Christ and honor his dad. And now we ask for your help here. Lord, come. We want to do what Jesus said to do. Namely, love each other the way he loved us. That's a miracle given the way he loved us. So we ask for a miracle. Use the Word of God to awaken obedience to the Son of God for the glory of God by the power of the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This sermon is a bridge. It's a bridge from the summer to the fall. It's a bridge from a year or more of topical messages, like marriage, regeneration, spectacular sins, into a more extended series of expositional messages on one book, namely the Gospel of John. It's a bridge from the fruit of the relational culture of love that we've been talking about these weeks, bridge from there into the root of that love, namely Jesus himself who enables that relational culture to happen it's a bridge from the summer break from small groups for many of you into what I pray will be a deeper, fuller engagement in small groups this fall so it's a bridge in more than one Way. Let me comment about the nature of the bridge for a moment before we look at this text. Since we finished Romans in 2006, December 2006, we have been moving from series to series on topics with a brief time in Psalms, choosing different Psalms. Remember those about five or six Psalms we dealt with. But by and large, I consulted with the elders and the elder said, I think we need something on the new birth and conversion. We need something on marriage. And, uh, and then they le- spelled out some ideas for exposition of a, of a longer book. And so that's what we've been doing. And now this message constitutes a bridge from all of that back into, uh, what, uh, Andreas Kostenberg calls the second of the Twin Towers of the New Testament, the first being Romans and the second being the Gospel of John. That's the plan. So the bridge is from all those topical times into an extended series on John. We're going to jump in next week at verse 1, chapter 1. Tonight we're jumping smack into the middle of the book at chapter 13 because I want to build a bridge from the relational culture. These last four or five weeks we've been on this. The relational culture of Philippians 2.4 Don't look only to your own interests but look also to the interests of others. Don't do anything out of jealousy or vain glory, but rather in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's what we want to be like here at this church. We want to be that way with each other. Some of you are so good at that, way ahead of me, and others of us can grow, and we want to grow in this. That's been the emphasis for the past several weeks. And so I thought as I move into John, where would be a good place to start? (laughs) The answer is, just stay with the topic one more week. I give you a new commandment, that you love each other. As I have loved you, that you love each other. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, being found in human form, became a servant and obedient under the cross. He, he humbled himself and served. So I said, just, just go there. Let's build the bridge that way into John thirteen thirty four. So that's what we're doing. And lastly, with regard to the bridge. If you're counting Bethlehem as your home church, you need to know something about the way we lead. we we got about 34 elders. I'm one of them. And we are charged by God to give an account for your souls. According to Hebrews 13, it exercises our minds and our hearts continually how to shepherd a church of this size in significant, personal, spiritual, accountable ways so that membership means something, means something in terms of what you benefit from and how you minister and how you're held accountable to walk with the Lord. And you need to know that for all the years we've thought about this together, We cannot improve, as far as we know, upon shepherding you mainly through your commitment to small groups. Small groups, shepherd groups. This booklet represents the shepherd groups. There are about 120 groups right now staffed by trained small group leaders. I think about 85 of them or so are in this book ready to receive you. Ready for you to walk into these groups. And my prayer is that one of the effects of this bridge message is that you will find your way this year, this school year, into that kind of togetherness. Small groups are not autonomous creations at Bethlehem. They are an organic part of shepherding from the elders through small group leaders to the people if you stiff arm this you turn away from our plan for you 34 men cannot know these thousands of people as closely as you need to be known in order to be cared for spiritually, physically relationally in your families but 12 people can know you Fifteen people can know you, and they can love you, and they can be all over you with blessing if you're in the hospital, and all over you with blessing in a crisis in your family. They can call you back from some terrible sin you're about to walk into. We pastors, we may hear about it a month later, and the glorious work has been done. We praise God. You just need to know we work really hard to try... To put things like this together and make it as possible as we can for you to find your way in. So on every campus, North Campus, downtown, there will be tables available after this service manned by people who know about small groups, maps where they are, representatives of the groups, more information. You can ask any question you want. Take your time if you want to turn that in and let us help you find a group. If you want to call somebody, we just want to do whatever we can to get into the organic flow of shepherding. Now, we know that shepherding happens in a lot of ways. This What I'm doing right now is my main shepherding. You know that David is called the shepherd of Israel in the Old Testament? He was king. He didn't know those people. (laughs) And I don't know most of your names. There are 4,400 people who came to Bethlehem last Sunday and Saturday. Can I shepherd people I don't know by name? I can Not in the fullness of the way you have to be shepherded biblically. But I can do this little piece. And then there are all kinds of classes. And then there are all kinds of ministries. And then there are all kinds of spontaneous friendships that happen. And then there are the small groups. And then there's Sunday school. There's all kinds of ways that shepherding happens. But we work hard to make the small group ministry, an organic flow from the elders who have to give an account for you down to the people. So I was thinking, what shall I preach on in that regard? And I thought, this text does that too. This text is about that too. And I hope you will hear it that way. Small groups have always been, along with big services, the key to shepherding. Always. It's not a new creation. Al referred to the first Pentecost as being a multi-language event. It was also the beginning of small groups. 3,000 people were converted that day. And it says added to the church in Jerusalem. You got 12 apostles, actually you got 11, and then one got added later. They quick had to create some other groups because they were really wrecking it with the widows. Everything was a mess. It'll always be a mess in the church, but they were working on it. What did they do? It says they met from house to house to break bread. That's what they did. They they split it up, and that's what we're trying to do. It's nothing new. It's nothing fancy. We don't have any fancy names for them. Small group. That's really uncreative. Shepherd group, it says. That's a little better. I'm sure you could come up with a really fancy name. That'd be fine. Let's go to chapter 13, verse 34. I'm only going to focus on one verse. Chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. This is to wet your taste for the beginning of the series back at chapter 1 next time, Lord willing. Chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love, you also are to love one another. There are a lot of glorious things in the text that was read. We're just focusing right here. And I have one question. What's new about the new commandment? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also are to love one another. And my question is simply, what's new? My prayer as we take the next minutes together to Dig into the context. My prayer is that we as a church would hear Jesus talking and not John Piper. This is Jesus. I command you, Bethlehem. Jesus Christ is talking. I command you. Not a comfortable word for a lot of people. Command, that's his word. I command you, love each other. Just listen to Jesus. This is not my idea. This is his commandment. So that's my prayer, is that as I talk, he would have his say. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also love one another. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is a Christian, that is born again, that is a child of God, if you are that, you are a person under authority. Your life is constrained and guided by commandments from an absolute authority. One of your self Consciousnesses. One of your self-identities should be, I'm not my own. I am a commanded person by the one who has the right to command all beings everywhere. And I am under him and my life is lived under authority. A new commandment I give to you. Jesus is more than the master of your life but he's not less. He comes to you with more than commandments, but not less. We are a people under authority. And what he wills when he commands is centrally love each other. That's his command. Love each other. A new commandment I give you. I come to you with authority. I'm the son of God. And I'm telling you, you don't like somebody in this church? Love those people the way I loved. That's his command. This is not an option. You don't go home tonight and say, I'm not going to, I'm going to wait for another sermon. One, one that I would find easier. Christians have no option. We are people under authority, and the command is, love each other. So my question, what's new about the command to love each other? Because he calls it a new commandment. And my answer is that there are two things that are new about Jesus' commandment to love each other. And the second half of the verse Contains both of them. What that verse says in the second half is just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So the newness of the command is found in the words, as I have loved you. Now, what are the two things that make the command new? In those words let me put a little phrase on them and then we'll unpack them the commandment to love each other is new in the mouth of Jesus because it is a command to live out the love of Jesus nobody in the Old Testament was commanded live out the love of Jesus he wasn't even there but now he's here and he's living it out and he says, love like that. Live out, live out, love out, my love. Secondly, this would be a little harder to see, but I'll show it to you and you'll see it. The commandment to love each other in the mouth of Jesus is new in that he says, live on the love of Jesus. Live out the love of Jesus and live on the love of Jesus. Now, you'll see it. You may look at it and say, I don't see that. But you will. Let's take those one at a time. If you like P's or letters that begin words the same, the first one you could call, it's new because the pattern is new and the second one is new because the power is new. Pattern power, if that helps. So let's go with the with the pattern first. Living out the love of Jesus. Living out the love of Jesus. The basis for this is found in the wider context of the chapter. What I do when I'm trying to answer questions like I'm asking here, what's new, is I just start reading out like this. I us go in concentric circles right out from my text. Backwards and forwards, looking for answers to my questions. I don't jump to Genesis. Psalms, as gloriously true as they are, I want right here. Is there something nearby that answers the question, what do you mean, as you loved us? And you don't have to go far, do you? So let's just go back to the beginning of the chapter where he set this up. Okay? He had done something to get ready for this verse. Verse 1 of chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His love is about to be demonstrated very practically. Verse 4, second half of the verse. He laid his aside his outer garments, taking a towel he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this is Philippians 2.3. Count others more significant than yourself. If anybody should be having his feet washed here, you know who it is. And it isn't Peter. Peter. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord, and your teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet for i have given you an example a pattern that you also should do just as i have done to you that's verse 34 New commandment I give you, love each other as I have loved you. End of little acted out parable, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Those are identical verses. So we don't have to go far to get help with what do you mean love each other the way I loved you. I just did it. I just parabolized it for you. I acted it out. I concluded that acted out parable with the same lesson that I'm repeating now in verse 34. Verse 15 says, I give you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And verse 34 says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So this is how we're supposed to love each other. And I see two things Implied clearly in this little acted out illustration of love. Number one, it involves counting others better than yourself rather than clinging to privilege or status. Right? Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant and died for sinners. There's the pattern. And now he's living it out, acting it out by washing feet. So the first thing pastors need to hear, because we're the status people around here, right? I'm in the pulpit right now. Is that my role should be manifest often with a towel around my waist, on my knees, washing your feet not huffing and puffing and making sure with a sense of entitlement that I be treated a certain way as the senior pastor of this church. If there's a spirit like that, it's not the spirit of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus goes the other direction. If anybody at that moment was Lord, if anybody right at that moment was pastor and teacher, it was Jesus Christ, and he took off his Outer garment, bound himself with a towel, got down on the floor, and took the role of slave. So the first thing you say about loving one another as Jesus loved us is that nobody grabs hold of a sense of entitlement. It's a killer. And Americans are shot through with a sense of entitlement. I was listening to a sermon the other day by R.C. Sproul commenting on how he disliked the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and then he paused and said, And you all believe it! Really? And then he gave an illustration of how, if I remember correctly, his transmission went out on him late one night, when he had an early appointment the next morning. And he grumbled to God. What kind of appointment? This is your work I'm in. And he paused and he said, that's pure entitlement. I say I don't like the, the health, wealth, prosperity. Bless me, bless me, bless me. And as soon as something goes wrong with me, I'm in your face, God. We all are tempted to even bring to the Almighty our sense of entitlement. Things should go well for us. We should be healthy and the car should run and nobody should throw rocks through my window. So the first lesson Jesus teaches us is just leave, let that go. That's a miracle, folks. That's a miracle. If John Piper can stop feeling a sense of entitlement, first as a human, second as an American, third as a husband, next as a father, then as a pastor, and all the benefits that go with that power, if I can get over that, what a miracle. If I could be a servant. Now the second, you see, it's just the flip side of the coin. The second way that this pattern works is that when he forsook his sense of entitlement, what he did was help them with something ordinary and simple and practical. In those days, there were no paved streets. No sidewalks with nice cement. And no socks. And no closed-toed shoes, probably. I don't know for sure. And therefore, everybody's feet were caked with dirt all the time, except when somebody, either them or somebody else, washed them. And it's dirty work, smelly work, low work, slave work. And that's what he did. There's hundreds of you who serve this church in invisible, lowly, simple ways and God is watching and every time he sees it, that's like my son, that's like my son and I'm pleased with my son and therefore I'm pleased with you. So those two things, forsaking a sense of entitlement and becoming a servant and that servanthood working its way out in just simple, practical, helping ways in people's lives. Look for ways to help people. With your mouth, with your hands, with your feet. That's the pattern. Now we turn to the second and last power. Where am I getting this? I said the newness of the new commandment is that it is a commandment to love like Jesus or to live out the love of Jesus. The pattern. And now I'm going to argue the newness also consists in living on the love of Jesus. Being so related to Jesus that Jesus becomes the power to love, not just the pattern to love. So where am I getting that? Because it's not readily obvious in the words, as I love you. So here's the second thing I do when I'm trying to answer a question like this. What's the newness? I'm just modeling for you so you can all become preachers or small group leaders. After I've looked at the context nearby, I get out my concordance and I try to find statements in the gospel that are as close to this statement as I can find. What's the closest parallel to this verse in all of the Gospel of John? That's my next goal. And it's chapter 15, verse 12. Let's go there. Because I'm figuring that if he uses the exact same language on the same evening, he's probably given me more, more help in understanding what he said back in verse 34 of chapter 13. So here we are in John 15... Verse 12, which goes like this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's pretty close. Almost identical. Now I've got another context I can look at for help. Don't I? And what do you see when you look at this context? Do you see pattern mainly? Let's read verses 9 and 10 of John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus is saying, the key To my loving you, the key to my loving you, Jesus loving you, is abiding in my Father's love. Staying in my Father's love. Living on my Father's love. Resting in my Father's love. Loving being loved by my Father. And never doing anything that would contradict my rest in my Father's love for me. Is in his Father's love. That's what it says at the end of verse 10. I abide in his love. That's how he loves us. And he tells us, love each other as I love you. And the way he loves us is by drawing power, by abiding in his father's love. See where I'm getting it now. I might think at that point, oh, "Is it really saying that? Is It's part of the newness, the likeness to Jesus' love, the 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 living on Jesus, the way He lives on the Father?" Is that? Am I getting at that right here? Is there a way I can confirm that I'm on the right track here? Thinking the thoughts of Jesus, and now we just do a little more context. Just go back up into chapter 15 and you know what this, you know what this chapter is about. You know the imagery that he's talking about. He's talking about vines and branches. I'm the vine. You're the branch. That's what's going on here. When he talks about abiding in the Father's love and you abide in me and I abide in my Father, he's talking about vines and branches. Look at verse 5 of chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So as I meditated on that word, you can do nothing unless you're abiding in me. That's where I got the word because another way to translate the word can do nothing is have no power to do anything you can't do anything of any spiritual significance unless you're abiding in Jesus and the reason is because vines give life to branches you break them off they're dead and life And light and power to love, to bear fruit, comes from Jesus. And he's getting it because he's so completely unified with the Father. So we've got God's love flowing through the Son of God into us if he's abiding in the Father and we're abiding in him. And therefore, I'm arguing that consciously, if you had asked Jesus what's new about the new commandment, He would have included in his answer, bigger than mine, I have given you a pattern in chapter 13, and I am showing you that this commandment to love each other is new because I'm here now to be abided in for the power to live it. And you will never live it if you don't abide in So, what does abide mean? (laughs) Could you, just for yourself, not for anybody else, just for your soul tonight, having heard this, you want to go home and obey. Okay, I'm supposed to abide. What do I do? There has to be something in our experience corresponding to these words. Hour by hour abiding in Jesus means hour by hour trusting him to meet all your needs and be all your treasure. I'm just drawing out the implications of what happens when a vine is in a branch. I am here Not by my big effort. You read the whole Gospel of John, you know that that is not the way it works. Believing on Jesus, trusting in Jesus, drinking from Jesus, eating Jesus is faith in the gospel of John. So me to be in the vine is to rest there, trust there, draw down from there, stay there, receive there. Everything I need is coming from him. I'm going nowhere but him. That's faith. And so my answer to what is this abide hour by hour abiding means you walk out of here and you open the door of your car. And some thought comes that, oh, things are going to go bad when I get home or tomorrow's going to be hard or or whatever. And you resist that by faith, by saying, no, I've got a great vine And he's all sufficient for me. And if I will trust him, it will flow to me. Love will flow to me. I'll be able to love people. I'm not naturally a loving person. That's why I'm in the vine. And it's coming to me. And new life is coming into me. And the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for us is flowing into me. And now we can love each other by abiding in the one who loves in us and through us. Would you stop the sermon here? Kind of done. Really all I have to say in terms of what's new, the pattern is new and the power is new. And Christ is the key to both. Watch him and abide in him. There was a verse in the context here that screamed at me, don't stop the sermon here. So it's just another couple of minutes. Here's the question. How can I presume to expect that the love of God will flow through the Son of God to me instead of wrath when I am a sinner? Now, you might think, oh, you're just importing that in because you think you've got to tack the gospel onto this message and talk about the blood of Jesus. Well, you might think that. I don't feel that kind of compulsion. I just want to say what I see. And the next verse, after verse 12 of John 15, goes like this. Let me read the two together. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In John chapter 3, verse 36, a verse we will return to over the next 10 years, Hundreds of times. Says, if you believe on the Son, you will have eternal life. But if you do not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains upon you. Which means the wrath of God is on everybody except believers in Jesus and stays there so this sermon just cries out in the gospel of John how can I expect that nuzzling up to Jesus is going to get me anything but wrath he's infinitely holy his father is infinitely holy I am a sinner through and through I touch this holiness I'm incinerated so where I get this presumption that I could just kind of plug into him and suddenly love flows to me and not wrath. There are a lot of sentimental theologies in the world that say, well, it's just the way God is. God is love. The Gospel of John is not sentimental. Wrath. Remains on everybody who's not plugged into Jesus. And the reason plugging into Jesus is verse 13. The reason plugging into Jesus gets you love and not wrath is because he died for you. He took the wrath of God for you. We sang it. It's the most glorious news in the world and you can share it with anybody. You're under the wrath of God He sent his son to bear his wrath. If you will come to his son, his wrath will be taken away and he will be for you forever. And everlasting joy will be upon your head. That's good news. So now the sermon's over. (laughs) And it may be that those last four minutes were for you. Because the other part sounded like, whoa, is that me? And who can do that? And who belongs there? And what right do we have? And I'm a sinner, and how does that work? And and now you have heard in just a nugget from verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, you could die for your friend, but in the Gospel of John, when Jesus lays down his life for his friends, that's a lamb going to the slaughter to bear the wrath of God in our place. And now you know how you could walk out of here in this service, in those services, forgiven with God on your side and not against you by simply coming to Jesus, trusting him, abiding in him, embracing him, cherishing him, drinking from him, eating him, making him your Lord and your teacher who got down on his knees to wash your soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that the gospel of John would become for this church a tremendous power to love the relational culture of, of servanthood and love and compassion and attentiveness and meekness and forsaking entitlement that we've been talking about these weeks, this gospel never gets very far from that. And so we won't be very far. But, Lord, we would be infinitely far if you don't come by your Spirit Make this a reality. So I plead with you. Cause us to love each other at Bethlehem according to your pattern in Jesus and by your power in Jesus on the basis of your propitiation of your wrath through Jesus. Pattern. Power propitiation of wrath. Glorious newness to this commandment. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.